book of Zechariah, the weird book of Zechariah, right at the end of the Old Testament. We come to a point where the theme of this conference is the kingdom of God. That's what we've looked at in the sermons as well as in the seminar stuff that we've done during the daytime. The kingdom of God, this unfolding of how God rules with blessing over his people in the place he gives to them. And so you can see the Garden of Eden as funny to think of it, but yeah, you can see it as the kingdom of God, where God creates this garden where he places people to then, under God's goodness, they are to then rule the world and cultivate it and bring blessing to the world. But then they rebel against their God, uh, the kingdom collapses, they're ex exiled from, from the garden. And then we have this promise to Abraham that no, in the future God will again put people in a place of blessing and he will rule over them through his word, promise and covenant and they will then actually be a blessing to the whole world. And we watch then through the Old Testament, the kingdom come. You think of that as a New Testament thing. Jesus says, ah, oh, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is near. But you can see Israel entering the promised land and then God's covenant with King David and the establishment of the kingdom of David in Jerusalem, the temple of God in Jerusalem, as the Old Testament kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near. As God, through his King David, his Messiah, rules over his people. And news of God's word and God's purposes reach the peoples around and about during the reigns of David and Solomon. Well, in the time of Zechariah, all of that has fallen apart. It's blown to bits. They were sent away under the, um, the, the domination and, and conquest of the Babylonian Empire, sent away and scattered. And they've now clawed their way back to Jerusalem and Judah, but they are smaller, they are frailer, they are more vulnerable. So vulnerable, in fact, that there's a whole history book of the Bible around this time, a bit later than this time, that's all about building a wall just to have a little bit of extra protection. That's how vulnerable they are. They're, they're behind kind of cyclone wire fences and, and, and barely you know, um, getting themselves together to be protected. Smaller, frailer. Clearly they've made a way back, but the kingdom hasn't been restored. Not really. The hopes the prophets promised. Even before Babylon, the prophets were promising a future hope, but clearly that hope hasn't come true yet. They're back in the land, barely. They have a temple again, such as it is, or we're about to build it. Um, they have a people, few in number, and they have, well, they have a governor, not really a king anymore. Perhaps rather than the kingdom of God, you could say God's colony within the Persian Empire, or something like that. But all is not lost, and that's really where Zechariah comes in. The message of Zechariah and these other prophets at this time, what's called the post-exilic prophets, because they come after, post, after the exile. So they're after the exile of Babylon, they're back in the land. These prophets, they're saying, hey, you're back. This shows you God is still good. God hasn't forgotten you. And guess what? There is more to come. All is not lost. There is more to come. This isn't it. It's not like, oh, we're back in the land. What's there to complain about? Here you are. <laughs> but as I said, no, this is just a taste of something to come. This period in Israel's history gave birth to a new kind of literature. This horrific experience of the exile from the promised land under the empire of Babylon and then the return to the land under the empire of the Persians. 
It, like suffering often does, it can produce a different kind, often strange kinds of literature. And in this case, the Jews developed a form of literature called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. A-P-O. Apo. Calyt. C-A-L-Y. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature. It means revealing literature. That's what apocalypse means, revealing. It's revealing literature. But what is it? What is apocalyptic literature? Well, it's weird. It's really symbolic, hyper-symbolic literature. It's like a code language literature. It almost produces a little bit like if you've ever read, I mean, hands up if you've ever heard of or read The Pilgrim's Progress, has anyone? Oh, quite a, I guess, Christian, growing Christian backgrounds. There's a lot of weird stuff in The Pilgrim's Progress, right? Weird scenes when you think about it. So what happens? A guy called Christian goes into a room called Hope, and then there's a bottle called The Promises of God. And then in comes a, a lady called Maiden Helper, who, you know, it's, it's all this kind of, because each thing symbolises something, the, the, the image you see is kind of bizarre at times. These, these weird kind of nonsense symbols all piled on top of each other, perhaps a little bit like that. That's apocalyptic literature. Um, it features um, numbers, images, colours, often with significance to each one of these things. It features dreams and visions and interpreting angels. And I think that's where that idea of apocalypse comes from. It's interpreting. It's explaining. It's a hidden thing in code that, as it's explained, reveals a meaning, a deeper meaning. And what is that deeper meaning that is revealed, that is apocalypsed, that is made known? Well, it is the big cosmic perspective. It's the God's eye view. It's God's view on world history the heavenly influences, and the, the big picture, black and white, good versus evil story of the world. And, and another part of apocalyptic literature is a sense of the timeline, how things will happen, and, and what the important turns in time are along the way as the world reaches its climax. The effect of apocalyptic literature, we talked about the Psalms the other day and how you surf the Psalms and have to experience their emotion. Um, perhaps the apocalyptic literature, it does require thinking and study. There's this code and symbolic thing. But there also is a degree to which um, the effect of it is a, a dreamlike sci-fi experience. It, it captures you up in a, a, an awe and a wonder that then enables you, as you get sometimes really over-the-top things, kind of, by being over-the-top, um, enable you to sort of step back and look at the whole. You know, like those weird modern paintings that you go, what is it? It's just like a bunch of toddlers and puppies have been let loose with paint on a huge canvas. And it's just overwhelming and messy, but as you step back and just let the thing hit you, you get a sense of what it's about. In a bit the same way, the apocalyptic literature, you do analyse the details, but the weirdness also has an effect. And it forces you to step back and go, oh, I see. I see what's going on now. So there's, there's, there's two levels to it. You interpret it, but you also let it give you this big picture sense. Yeah? The person who just gets the big picture sense enjoys it a great deal but has no idea what it means. There's horses and there's dragons and there's pots and there's colours and there's fire. It's cool. What does it mean? No idea. On the other extreme, if you just interpret it, you become one of those people who has the charts and the symbols and can tell you exactly how 
the invasion of Ukraine fits into the fulfilment of the prophecy of Zechariah, and you miss the big picture. You think it's about details too much. The answer's in between. Interpret the key meaning, but then get the big picture. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're not going to do the whole book. We're going to do the first eight chapters. It's, a, it's funny, <laughs> having done 34 chapters of Deuteronomy and 150 Psalms yesterday, I now can't manage eight chapters of Zechariah. But that's because I want us to, it's a different, it's a trickier type of literature, and I want us to get a feel of this, how this works. So we're going to do the first eight chapters. And here what we have is um, uh, uh, asking the question, what is needed? What is needed for the full restoration of Israel? That's the big question. What is needed for the full restoration of Israel? And what's it going to be like? That's really what gets answered across these eight chapters. What's needed for the future, for the kingdom to come in its final form? And what's it going to be like when the kingdom comes in its final form? So first, uh, I think I've got four or five headings. The first is, well, I'll tell you exactly how many I think come on. What do they pay me for? I've got five headings, all right? Um, and the first of those is, what's needed for Israel's restoration? Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. What's needed for Israel's restoration? Let's have a look at chapter 1, verse 3. Tell this people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Don't be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they wouldn't listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets? Do they live forever? But did not my words and decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then the people repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. They repented, they heard God's word, God's challenge, and they turned back. They learned the lesson of history. We talked about that last night, learning from history. They learned the lesson from history, and they did differently. They turned back, returning to God, repenting. And repenting just means returning, really. It means turning, turning back to God. But not just turning and looking at the Bible or a temple or something, but it's in your heart, changing your heart, your soul, your mind away from rebellion towards trust and obedience. Turn back to God, humble yourself before God, ask for mercy from God, and guess what? He'll give it. As we saw way back in Deuteronomy, the Lord, and in the first sermon, the Lord is, is abounding in love and faithfulness. He shows mercy to a thousand generations. Slow to anger, but abounding in love. This same message of Zechariah it's really the message of John the Baptist at the beginning of the New Testament as we're ready for the kingdom to finally come with Jesus' arrival. And how does he prepare the way in the desert? By preaching a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. The same message, return to God and he'll return to you. Get ready. The kingdom is coming. The final judgment, the great Messiah. He's almost here, the spirit baptizer. Prepare the way. Return to God and he'll return to you. Turn from your evil ways. Turn back to the Lord. The whole Christian life, in fact, is repentance. It's the continuing to hear God and turn to him. Turn to him in trust and obedience. Turn away from evil and, and rebellion and temptation towards trust and obedience. Are you in the habit of repentance? Is your life one that sees 
evil and, and evil thoughts and, and turns from them back to God. When you do, he'll forgive you. So keep doing it. Like 1 John says, if we do sin, he's faithful and he's just. He forgives our sins. And part of this repentance, another way it's described in chapter 2, is separating from the world. Separating from the world. Part of this, what needs to happen for Israel to be restored? Well, what needs to happen is turn, repentance, and separate from the world. Chapter 2, verse 6. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. It's an interesting image, this one. Um, it's get out of Babylon, leave the world, come to God's, God's place, God's rule, God's kingdom. What's interesting about it, however, is that this is a message spoken to those who have left Babylon, who are back in Judah. Um, it's the message of God in the time of the Persian Empire, not the Babylonian Empire. Now, sure, there are Jews still dispersed scattered in the other nations, like the, where, where they were scattered by Babylon. So, I mean, you think about Queen Esther, she's still off in the Persian Empire, even after the return. Um, so it could be addressing the, the remaining Jews. The rest of you, come back. We've come back. You come join us. But I suspect there's something else going on, particularly by this use of Babylon like this. I suspect he's also even saying to the ones who have returned, you may have returned with your bodies, but have you returned with your hearts? Did you come back to Judah keeping your Babylonian passport? That kind of idea. Yeah? You're here physically, but spiritually, are you still of this world? Have you brought Babylon with you? Is the idea. Babylon may have fallen, the empire may be over, but does it live on? This is a really common feature in the New Testament where Babylon, especially in the book of Revelation, which draws from Zechariah a lot, Babylon comes to be used symbolically to just describe a world in rebellion against God. There's a really apocalyptic literature weird bit where it talks about two witnesses um, who will be killed in the, the evil city, the great city, which is Babylon and is also Egypt, and is also where our Lord was crucified. <laughs> Babylon, Jerusalem, Egypt, all of them. Because the point is, the world could be seen as where the Lord is crucified. That, this is the world, the world that rejected the Messiah. It could be seen as Egypt, which opposed Moses. It could be seen as Babylon, which exiled the people. It's leave the world in rebellion against God. That's the point. Whether it is literally leaving your scattered existence to return to the homeland, or symbolically, spiritually, leave the world with a capital W. Yeah? Leave being away with a capital A. Leave the exile with a capital E and return. No need to be away anymore. No need to be in exile anymore. No need to belong to the world anymore. Come home, God says. Part of repentance, turning from evil, is this separating ourselves from the world. Now that doesn't mean necessarily Christian schooling or not listening to secular music, but only kind of Christian rock and these kind. I mean, it might include that, but it's not specifically about that. Christian soccer team, <laughs> Christian political party. That, that, it's not that sense. It's, it's a, on a more fundamental level, 
on a spiritual allegiance level. You could be listening to uh, secular music like the Wiggles singing Tame and Parlour. And you could be uh, in a secular soccer club. Um, and you could vote for a secular political party. And you could have gone <gasps> to a secular school before you came to university. Or a secular university. Heavens, you've all fallen away now, haven't you? Um, <laughs> um, and yet, where is your allegiance? Who are you as you play your soccer and listen to your wiggles and go to your university classes? You're God's person. In, a, in loyalty to him, a member of his kingdom, the passport you carry is a passport to the kingdom of heaven. Where are you a citizen? Where is your loyalty? Are you a citizen of Babylon, so to speak? Do you have a permanent residency visa in Babylon, so to speak? Is your value and your love and your loyalty to Australia, to China, to uh, the global humanity, the human race. What do you value most? What do you care for most? What will you die for most willingly? Is it God and his people and his purposes? Or is it something of this world alone? Am I a citizen of Zion, of God's kingdom? You might see it in what you laugh at, snicker at. You might see it in whom you admire, really look up to, and what you copy about them. See it in the way you go about making decisions. Not just the decision you make, but also the reasons you get there. In what really moves you. In the priorities and what leads you then to say no to some things in the end and make other things more important. Whose approval you really crave, or whose rejection really kills you. Where you invest your time, where you invest your money. Come out of that one, won't you? As you go into this year, many of you as you leave home, you have a whole new opportunity to be the new you. And, and you can figure out where you go to church, or if you go to church at all, really, in four weeks' time. We'll start to see that, won't we? We'll see how you make friends and how you behave in friendship groups. We'll see how you set up the rhythms of your life. You're doing it now. It's not mum and dad nagging you, maybe, for many of you. It's now up to you and your conscience before God that's going to set those patterns. And in all of that, you'll start to see this stuff. So I want to encourage you guys to hear what God's saying here and actually begin to apply it now. now take, take a sense of that God-given responsibility. I mean, you'll mess up, right? You'll sleep through a class and wake up at 2 p.m. and you'll find yourself eating ice cream in the morning and um, not going to church sometimes and making some big mistakes perhaps you feel very embarrassed about in all sorts of ways. So, again, repentance, forgiveness is, is, will always be there. But continue that process is what I'm saying. Own that that's a process now. You are making your destiny, in a sense, one day at a time, one week at a time, as you make these decisions. Who am I? Who will I trust? Where will I live? Turning back to God, leaving um, Babylon, also under this point, is building the temple. Part of their repentance is to devote their energy to building God's temple. 
The context for Zechariah is um, Haggai chapter 1. It's given for us there. We won't look at it for time's sake, but it describes how the, uh, the challenge of God in, in the start of the book of Haggai is, here you are, you're back in the land, you're God's people, and yet God's temple's in ruins, and you're kind of putting an extension on your house. What's going on? Come on. It's time to now build God's house at the centre of your lives and, and his kingdom. Build the temple as the place, the symbolic place where God dwells among you. That's the job the Lord has for them to do. It's not just about coming back to the right geography, just being having a Jewish ethnicity. It's not about re-establishing your residence, your agriculture, your politics, your economy. It's just about the kingdom of God, the people of God. Therefore, it's about the worship of God in the temple. The uh, bizarre vision in chapter 4 that we'll come back to captures this um, powerfully in verse 6, 4 verse 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to the governor Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he'll bring out the capstone to the shouts of God bless it. God bless it. And the word of the Lord came to me. The hand of Zerubbabel, the governor, have laid the foundation of his temple. His hand will also complete it. Then you'll know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. Build the temple as God has given you to do. That's your job. The image of chapter 4 that we'll return to is picked up in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 11, to describe the two witnesses. And the job of the two witnesses in the New Testament is not to build a temple again. There's no Christian temple. This is merely a building, not even a church. It's a church building. It's a building for the church, which is the people. Now, we don't have temples. Um, but the two witnesses, their job in their day, which is our job in our day, is to preach the gospel to testify, to be witnesses, to testify, to witness to the gospel. What we build is not a temple. We build the new temple of God, which is the people of God, which is the church. And you don't build the church with capstones and plumb lines. You build the church with the word of God. As it's preached and heard, people are built like living stones on the rock of the confession of Christ. And the apostle Peter and his witness we will build the church. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overtake it. At the end of that gospel, Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me, so now go. Make disciples of all nations. The job they had been given was to build the temple, physical temple. That was the duty. The job God had for them. The job God has for us is to share in the preaching of the gospel. Building his spiritual temple, the church through sharing in mission. In their day, they were tempted to focus on building their own house and planting their own vineyard and not thinking of God's temple. In our day, pretty similar. We can work so hard for that top grade, save up for the possibility of having a deposit on a house, strive for the best career, building whatever we see as the dream life, intensely following whatever it is, the steps per day or the calories per meal, and, and being intricately committed to these various projects. 
But where is our interest in God's job that he has for us as his people? For mission. And then last of all, in this um, first major point, um, the removal of evil. The points do get shorter, by the way. Um, the removal of evil. We have a couple of images about that in chapter 5. Two weird images, actually. It's a weird book. And let's get, get our weird on. First of all, we have a flying scroll. Not like a cinnamon scroll, but like a paper scroll, a message. A flying scroll! Exclamation mark, 5 verse 1. What do you see? I said, I see a flying scroll, 30 feet long. 15 feet wide! Imagine that in this room! <laughs> Flying! He said, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. According to what it says on the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. I will be sent out, I will enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by its name, and will remain in his house to destroy it. Evil will be dealt with. It's again repentance, isn't it? Return to me, leave Babylon. The judgment of God comes on those who, who, who will not follow in God's ways. That's, that's the image. It's this great warning of God, turn back to me, leave Babylon. It's a question of true... Uh, sorry, then five, uh, verse 5 to 11, we get the second one. This one always makes me laugh. We get a measuring basket. What is it? It's a measuring basket, verse 6. Um, and then he added, this is iniquity of the people throughout the land. And then he raises the cover of lead. Uh, and in the basket sat a woman. <laughs> this is so deadpan. Um, uh, he said, this is wickedness. And he pushed it back into the basket and pushed the lead cover over its mouth. <laughs> this is wickedness. <laughs> um, and then some other women appear. And these are the good women who then pick up that basket and carry it off back to Babylon. The same point again. Evil has no place amongst God's people. Worldliness has no place amongst God's people. L lying has no place amongst God's people. Chapter 7, the people come and ask the question about when should we do our special fasts, ceremonially refrain from eating in honour to God? Should we fast in these months? Verse 3 of chapter 7. And Zechariah's answer is, you know what? God is not so interested in your external ceremonial fasts. God isn't especially interested in you going without food. What he's interested in the kind of ceremony or fast he wants, verse 5 of chapter 7, ask all the people of the land, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month of the past seven years, was it really for me you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not feasting for yourselves? This is a challenge. I want you, not just your ceremony. Are you even doing it for me? Here's the kind of fasting I want, verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy. Show compassion to one another. Don't oppress the widow and the fatherless, the alien and the poor in your hearts. Don't think evil of one another. That's what God's interested in. Evil, injustice, cheating, lying, bullying, boastfulness. These have no place amongst God's people. Amongst us, if we are to be God's people, God's fellowship of Christians from a bunch of churches. What kind of community will we be? What kind of Christian friendship groups will you be a part of, those of you who are Christian? What kind of evils and lying and cheating will you kind of tolerate and just snigger about or take seriously? Will you take godliness seriously in your life, in your communities, in your friendship groups? So they prepare for God's blessing. So hope for the future. 
Zechariah's message is return to God, come out of the world, get on with his work, get rid of evil and injustice. That's the big building block point, and that's why it was so long. Now, in the next four points, we'll see what it will look like. So you could really see this as point two with um, subheadings, if you like, however you prefer. Um, so anyway, secondly, the judgment on the nations is what is in store. The judgment on the evil nations. It's interesting. Chapter 1, verse 10 talks about peace. And at first, it seems like a good thing. Chapter 1, verse 10. The man standing among the myrtle trees explained to me, uh, these, uh, these ones are the ones who are sent to go out throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel, having been out throughout the earth, they report to the angel who was standing among the myrtle trees, we've gone throughout the earth and found the world at rest and in peace. These uh, symbolic horse riders have travelled out and they come back to say, we found the world at peace. And, and that sounds good, right? I want peace. Don't you? It's fantastic. However, it's a particular kind of peace. It's an unpleasant kind of peace. Because, you know, a tyrant can bring a nation in chaos to a time of peace, can't they? If a nation is in chaos, that's often the best time to become a tyrant. You can rise up and promise certainty and security and strength. You can put your nation at peace. Maybe you could put a whole region at peace through your domination. And that's the case here. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord said, The Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, with which you've been so angry these 70 years? And so the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. You see that there are still injustice and oppression and suffering that has not yet been dealt with. It's an inadequate worldly peace. Justice needs to be fully restored, verse 14. The angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel insecure at peace. I was only a little angry, but they added to this calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and then my house will be rebuilt. God will restore true justice. This vision gets picked up again. It's like a bracket to the whole book. Uh, a whole first half of the book, we come back to these horses travelling throughout the world and this discussion of peace in chapter 6. For in chapter 6, verse 1, I looked up again and there before we were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Um, the first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. And I asked the angel, what are these, my lord? Now notice none of those little details are analysed. Don't, you don't need to analyse every detail. Don't go crazy with your apocalyptic literature analysis spreadsheets and charts. What's the point? Interpret this to me, verse 4. So the angel interprets it. These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses going towards the north country, the one with the white horses towards the west, and the one with the dappled horses towards the south. And these powerful horses went out. They were straining to go out through, throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. And they went throughout the earth. And they called and said, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. This is now God's rest, God's peace. And remember, we saw the land of the north earlier. That's a reference to Babylon. Babylon's not actually in the north. You just enter it from the north if you're leaving um, uh, Jerusalem. Um, but this is land, Babylon. God's spirit now has peace there. It's now God's peace where justice has been secured and tyrants and evil has been dealt with. What will God's kingdom be like when it finally comes? Justice and God's peace in the whole world. 
You see again in chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, again, a, a speaking about justice coming. Come, O Zion, 2, verse 7, escape from you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says, after he has honoured me and sent me against the nations that have plundered you. But whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them, so their slaves will plunder them, and then you will know the Lord Almighty has sent me. God's judgment will come. Now, judgment's not a pleasant topic, is it? I don't like thinking about it. I think it's a worry when preachers preach about it with too much glee, as if they like the thought of others being squashed. But in a, a wicked world, and an imperfect world of injustice, judgment is necessary. Judgment is, um, is the face of justice um, when it turns to evil and injustice. It's the form that justice and goodness takes when it confronts evil and injustice. Judgment says goodness and truth and mercy matter. Judgment says God sees, God sees evil and he sees injustice and he sees abuse and he sees tyranny and they are not okay and they will not be okay in the end. Evil does not win. The powerful tyrant does not win. The abuser, the liar, the cheat doesn't win. Not in the end. Judgment says there is a sure hope for the oppressed. It's horrible to think about the judgment of God. It's also horrible to think about evil and injustice and tyranny and abuse, isn't it? Yeah. But in the world we live in, where there is evil and injustice and tyranny and abuse and rebellion against God who made everything and from which all the other evil comes, in a world that is horrible to think about, this unthinkable thing of God's judgment is a right reaction. Knowing that God will judge also frees us from taking all the vengeance. Whether that means governments that overreach to try and control everything amongst their citizens and so oppress their citizens with tight control, trying to guarantee perfection, like many of the, uh, the totalitarian governments in the world. Or whether it's just the, the angry mob who are furious and almost in a kind of furious despair take justice into their own hands. And that doesn't work out great either. But knowing that God will judge means we can pursue justice in this lifetime while also leaving room for God's final justice. The Lord will bring justice to the world by judging the nations. Next, what will the kingdom be like? So the judgment of the nations, the next thing, what will the kingdom of God be like? This is point three. Uh, God will provide a priest to the king. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, we have this uh, description of the Satan accusing a priest for his impurity and his sin, pointing a finger and saying, this king is no good, this, sorry, this priest is no good. Accusing, verse 1, that's what Satan means, accuser. But the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And here was the priest dressed in filthy clothes, verse 3. And he stood before the angel. And the angel said to him, take off these filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, I've taken away your sin. I'll put rich garments on you. Put on a clean turban on your head, verse 5. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. And the angel stood by, and the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I'll give you a place among those standing here. You will be purified. You will be a God's gift to the people. You will purify the people, verse 9. At the end there, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The last sentence of verse 9. God will provide a priest, purify the priest, to then purify the people. Joshua was not actually that priest, though. Verse 8 tells us, oh no, he's symbolic of something to come. He's just a symbol of the priest I will one day provide. Another Joshua. Because you know what? How Joshua would have come across in Hebrew? Like Yeshua. And when you take Yeshua and turn that into Greek, you get Jesus. You get Jesus into English and you get Jesus. This Jesus, this Joshua, is a sign of the great Jesus, the great Joshua, the great Yeshua, the great Jesus, who is pure and will purify people in a single day on that Good Friday when he takes away the sins of the world. We then, in chapter 4, get the priest and the governor. We already looked at this. The Zerubbabel, what a fabulous name. If you're looking for a name and God blesses you with kids one day, or you've got some friends who may be expecting kids, an older brother or sister, um, then, look, no offence to the Josiahs of the world. And, look, we all, we all love a, you know, a Joshua, don't we? And, um, and Peter. But, you know, have, have you ever thought about Zerubbabel? I mean, Ezekiel's getting a look in these days. There's not a few Ezekiel's. Um, let's bring on the Zerubbabel. So that's my encouragement to you, is when God blesses you with kids, some of you one day, I want Zerubbabel to be on the list. What would be the, the nickname for Zerubbabel, I wonder? But Zerubbabel the governor and uh, Joshua the priest, are the, uh, he says in verse 14, the two anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth, 414, and they will light this lamp, showing God's presence and God's blessing, and will build the temple of the Lord. God provides leaders, anointed leaders, to build the temple, to bring purification. And then in chapter 6, we get the passage read to us at the beginning of our time, where the priest becomes a king. Just weird on weird, this book of Zechariah. The priest becomes a king. The word of the Lord came to me, 6 verse 9, take silver and gold from the exiles of Heldai, Abijah, and Jediah, 6 verse uh, 6 10, and have them arrive from Babylon and go that same day to the house of Josiah, son of Jephaniah, take the silver and the gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place to build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. This is not a king in the line of Judah and David and Solomon. This is a king in the line of Levi and Aaron. And there will be harmony between the two, between priest and king. So the priest, the priest is crowned. The priest who will be the branch. The priest who will work to build the temple. Only, we saw in 3 verse 8 that he's symbolic of something to come. And so also here, in chapter 6, verse 14, no sooner is he crowned than they take the crown away. And the crown is given to Hildai, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and hence of Zephaniah as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Because he is not actually going to be the king. 
He's, he's acting out the priest king to come. Isn't that cool? Priest king to come. There'll be harmony between priest and king. And that's something we then see come in the New Testament. Yesterday we looked at the Psalms, and we didn't actually look at Psalm 110, but it's the kind of messianic prophecy psalm in the Psalms, where the king is told, you are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. So we've got this, this kind of bomb blowing apart priest and king in the middle of the psalm, Psalm 110, and then we've got another bomb here blowing apart the priest and the king, in um, Zechariah, we get the priest becoming a king. And these two things kind of make the whole Old Testament priest, king, Levi, temple thing unstable. It's not going to last forever. It can't be held together for too long. And, um, and then in the New Testament, we see how that will come out. That we have Jesus in the order of Melchizedek who will bring this harmony between the two, between priest and king. Jesus who's a perfect priest. You can come with me to Hebrews 7 if you like and we see how that's celebrated in Hebrews 7. Um, uh, we get that psalm referred to in Hebrews 7, Psalm 110, and, and we get told, how does this work? Because priests like Joshua, they come from the line of Levi. And kings like David and Solomon, they come from the line of Judah. How does this work? And then he says... In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. It doesn't matter if he's from Judah. doesn't matter if he's from Levi. The reason he's a priest is on the basis of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 23, now there have been many who have been priests, like Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Like the other high priest, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which comes after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. He is the priest king who does the once for all sacrifice and then sits down, sits down on his throne as the king. Judgment to the nations, the provision of priest and king, a glorious hope for Jerusalem and Judah. Back to Zechariah. In chapter 1, we're told that he says that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. We won't read that for time's sake, but in 1, 16 to 17, uh, the Lord says he'll rebuild Jerusalem. More than that, chapter 2 says, it's going to be mega. It's going to be great. In the start of chapter 2, someone goes to measure Jerusalem and they get stopped. Whoa, hang on, whoa, whoa, stop you there. It's like you see somebody about to climb up a ladder with no one spotting them and holding them. Whoa, whoa, work health and safety, stop there. In this case, it's, man, you're dreaming. You can't measure this city. Not the city to come. Not the city when the, the, all of this is fulfilled. When God comes, the kingdom dawns in its fulfilment. Verse 4, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because the great number of men and livestock within it, and God himself, verse 5, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I'll be glory within it. The whole city will be a temple now where God's glory dwells. The whole city will be a temple where God himself will be a fiery wall of protection. This is a whole other level 
of God's presence and blessing and protection when this dawns. Chapter 3, verse 10, when the priest is purified and forgives the sins of the people, people then enjoy wonderful abundance and joyful blessing in 3, verse 10. Each of you will invite a neighbour to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And in 8, verses 1 to 23, the whole of chapter 8, this is in that theme of fasting. Chapter 8 switches it around and says, you know what, in the future, all these fasts that you used to have will become feasts. And instead, all through the year, there'll be feasting, there'll be abundance, there'll be joy, there'll be blessing. Verse 12, for example, this seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, the heavens will drop their dew. I'll give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of my people. As you've been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and Israel, so I will save you and you'll be a blessing. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. Oh, it goes on and on and on. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And so verse 19, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasion. There will be happy festivals for Judah. There will be love, truth and peace. Which brings us to the final point as we close. When this time comes, the nations are judged, the priest is provided to... Uh, Forgive the people and a king provided to build the temple when there is this God dwelling and all of God's place will be like a temple and there is abundant blessing and joy, then the nations will share in the blessing. It's hinted at in 2.11, hinted at in 6.15, and now check it, verse 20 of chapter 8, the end of our section as we come to a close. It's a great picture here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let's go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty said. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let's go with you. Because we've heard that God is with you. God said to Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And when the kingdom comes, Zechariah says, all the nations on earth will be blessed. How does that happen? Well, that's mission. That's evangelism. If we understand God's purposes, then we do pray. Your kingdom come in mission, in evangelism. If we understand God's purposes, we ought to give as God gives to us. Give from our abundance for the cause of mission and evangelism. We ought to pray for our opportunities to say we're Christian and to say why we're Christian to the people God gives us into our lives and to be open to meet new people that we can share with them this message. Say, come with me to Jerusalem, so to speak. And perhaps it might mean, we'd love it it would be, you get involved with us this year, Uni Fellowship Hobart and Launceston, as we are really local mission societies seeking to help the young adults and the students of Tasmania to be thinking and working together to share this great message and to say to their classmates and flatmates and friends and schoolmates, hey, I'm going to Zion, the heavenly Zion. Do you want to come with me? Here's the hem of my robe. <laughs> Join with us as we share this wonderful blessing of God. Let's pray. Loving Father, we rejoice in you and your goodness, and we wonder at your great plans. We want to turn to you 
follow you through the work you have given us. And we rest on the priest and king you have provided for us to forgive us and to lead us. Make us this year godly in our lives and communities and fruitful in sharing the message of Jesus with others, we pray. Amen. Amen.